It's good to see you this morning. Um, it's hard to believe that it is already the second week of the summer. Um, I know that the summer flies by for all of us, but uh, it doesn't technically start actually until next week. We know that. Um, but it is the second week of June, second week of the summer, and it's hard to believe that we are already there. Summer to me, I don't know about to you, but it's one of the most exciting times of the year. Um, it's full of all sorts of fun, it's full of all types of activities. Um, things like Camp 323 that start tomorrow. How many of us are excited about that? How many of you are serving at Camp 323? A lot of us. We're going to have about 1,200 people on our campus, um, kids, uh, grade school and below, who are just learning about the gospel of Jesus. Those of you who are serving, I want to remind you, uh, around Tuesday or Wednesday, you're going to have a headache um, it, these kids are chaotic, they're full of energy, and they are going to be very frustrating at times to you. Um, when they get together, uh, they don't know how to act, okay? That's even my kids included. I just want to know, I want you to know that I'm praying for you, okay? Um, and if you're not serving, you make sure you're praying for all of those who are, but also be praying for those campers. We're going to hear more about that at the conclusion of our time together today. But summer's full of all sorts of activities. We're even um, full now. Um, you know that we're going to be taking a student, our students on a camp, um, I guess in about two weeks. Uh, that camp is already completely full, uh, so we want to go ahead and invite you also to be praying for our students as they prepare to go as well. But those are things that we look forward to and we anticipate as the summer approaches. Summer's exciting also because of vacation. Many of you are going to take a vacation, maybe you're going to the mountains, maybe you're going to the beach, maybe you're just going to go to some other unique location, but it's a time for you to rest, it's a time for you to relax, it's a time for you to enjoy family, and maybe for some of you, even friends. But that's what the summer is all about. Summer is this season where we rest, it's a season where we congregate together with family, and we get together with friends, and we hang out at the pool, or we go to the park, or we you know, invite people over to barbecue, whatever the case may be, it brings all of this enthusiasm and this excitement into the season of summer. But my prayer and our prayer here at Eagles Landing is that for this season, that this summer, the summer of 2023, we want to help you make this summer the best summer yet. And I know that that sounds so clever, and it might sound like a little cliche, but we actually mean it. We really want this summer to be the best summer yet. We've accompanied this sermon series, Best Summer Yet, with a guide, a book, uh, that was designed specifically for you. Um, I'm not sure how many of you grabbed a copy or how many of you are using this. I actually walked through it this morning. This week, starting tomorrow, is all about Mark 10.45. For, you know, for the Son of Man to not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the challenge this week is to figure out and to find out ways that you can serve not only your family, but also your neighbors and the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's a great exercise for us to do as families. But then in the very back of the book, uh, there are all sorts of events, um, things like going to, on a picnic at the park, playing wiffle ball in the front yard, or playing kickball, all sorts of things fill the pages in the back um, to allow you as a family to enjoy time together, maybe you and some friends to enjoy time together, maybe even you in, the, in your life group to enjoy time together. But we really do want this to be spiritually, emotionally, physically, in every single way possible. We want this to be the best summer yet. So if you didn't get one of these, make sure you pick it up on your way out today. Uh, I think we have plenty of copies, or you might find one 
um, in one of your favorite restaurants or, you know, wherever you get haircut, whatever the case may be, uh, throughout our community as well. We've put them out in different various places there too. So our prayer for you specifically is that we would leverage this summer and we would lean in on God and that we would truly experience intimacy with him over the month of June and through the month of July Hopefully that this will create a rhythm in our life to do that even through the next months as well. Last week, Matt McKinney kicked off this uh, message or this series for us. Matt did a phenomenal job, did he not? Um, Did a great job. Um, Matt talked about that. Matt talked about the importance of walking in rhythm with God. Um, I was thinking as Matt talked about what it looks like to dance, okay? The rhythm of the, the motions in the dance come from the music, right? You don't create your own rhythm. I mean, we create our own because none of us know how to dance, right? Um, and you, you've seen a choir of people who don't know how to keep a rhythm. You know what that looks like? Like everybody's swaying a different way and nobody's kind of doing the same thing. Um, well, the music is supposed to set the rhythm and then you're supposed to follow that rhythm. And in many ways, that's what we're doing here through the summer. We're letting God and his word set the rhythm for our lives. And we're trying to get our lives in tune in rhythm with him. That's all we're trying to do, okay? So that's kind of where we're headed throughout the summer. And Matt kicked it off last week with talking about the importance um, in the book of Philippians uh, of walking in rhythm with God. And here's where I want to go today, okay? I'm going to give it to you at the very beginning, and this is where I hope we'll land the plane. This is where we're going today. The key to having your best summer yet is to develop a healthy rhythm of prayer and praise in your life. The key for you, the key for me, the key for us as a congregation to have our best summer yet is for you and I to create a rhythm of prayer and praise in our own individual lives. So this morning, if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of the Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 95. Psalm 95. This is a familiar psalm. Um, It's one that I like to personally revisit often. Um, I hope that this pattern, this rhythm of revisiting even some similar passages um, or some at least familiar passages uh, will be a rhythm that you create too. There's just certain books and certain chapters and certain verses uh, that when, when you hear them, when you come into contact with them, the Lord just uses them to shape and to mold your life. And this has certainly been how this psalm has worked in my life. Now this psalm, Psalm 45, it begins with a vigorous And it begins with an enthusiastic call to praise and worship. You're going to see that this morning. Now what I want to ask you to do for me, okay, I want to ask you to bury the idea that anytime you think of the word worship, you also think of music, okay? Because that's not what worship holistically is. You are a worshiper. You understand that. There is not a second of your day where you are not worshiping. The challenge that you and I are faced with is who is the object of our worship or what is the object of our worship? Where is our worship directed? To whom are we worshiping? It's either Jesus or it's not. It's very simple. It's very clear. But there's not a moment in any giving day where we are not worshiping. So what I want to encourage you to do today is to remember when we talk about the word worship, we're talking about who we are, the essence of who we are created by God, namely to give him worship with our individual lives. So the language in this text, I love it because it's full of celebration. 
It's full of trust. It's full of praise. I mean, listen to the first two verses. It says this. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Nobody? Anybody want to give a joyful noise to the rock of their salvation? Yeah. Yeah, you can do that. It's okay. It says, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. The reason we have incorporated songs within worship is because scripture tells us to do so. And we see that David, who spent his time in the middle of the field pastoring or pasturing sheep, like spending time with these sheep, he had a plethora of time just to sit there and not to waste, but to actually reflect and remember who God is and what God has done. And he penned songs known as the Psalms to worship him in that way. You and I, were recipients of those Psalms today. We get to read them. But these were songs that were sung to God. And David here is saying, let us make a joyful noise uh, to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. And here's the beauty of this text. This psalm, what it does is it doesn't just leave us hanging. It, it doesn't just say, hey, make a joyful noise twice, by the way. Then it tells us the reason we ought to do that. It says, uh, this psalm, it leads us really to reflecting on the character of God. Watch this in verse 3. It says, for the Lord is a great God. Is he not a great God? He's a great God. He's a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountain are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands are formed or have formed the dry land. So it tells us the reason we come before him and the reason we make a joyful noise to him, the rock of our salvation, our redeemer who is alive and well and working in our lives, is because he's a great God. And it doesn't just leave us with reflecting on his character. Then it says, by the way, it's not just enough to make a joyful noise because you're reflecting on the character of God. You also ought to make a joyful noise because you're in relationship with God. <laughs> Look what it says in verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture. We're the sheep of his hand. You and I, church family, have every reason in the world to praise God because he is indeed the rock of our salvation. You and I are his people, and he is our God. And what the psalmist is doing in these first seven verses is he's saying, this is the reason that you and I are to praise. This is the reason you and I are to worship, namely him. It's because of who he is and what he's done, and because he has brought us through, the, through his son, Jesus Christ, into relationship with him. So he says at the beginning, I want you to worship him, and then he shifts a hard shift here from worship to warning. Listen, he says this at the end of verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah and on the day at Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For, for, for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, listen to this. They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they had not known my ways. There are two phrases in this last paragraph that, quite frankly, ought to rock our world. The first phrase is here in verse 8, where he says, Do not harden your hearts. He, he's not talking just to anybody in general. 
He's talking to men and women who are created and crafted by the hands of God to give him glory. And he's saying, as a caution to you who ought to be making a joyful noise to the Lord, don't you harden your heart as those others did before you. And then he says this in verse 10. They are a people who go astray in their hearts. So what is the psalmist doing? The psalmist is beginning this psalm by calling us to sing to the Lord. He's saying to you and I, I, it doesn't matter if you can carry a tune or not. The objective here is if he's the rock of your, if he's the rock of your salvation, that you would be singing a joyful song to him. In fact, he goes further and he exhorts us to make a joyful noise. He doesn't even specify what kind of noise that is. Just make a joyful noise. And he says that twice in these two verses. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Okay, that's one thing we ought to be doing. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Just a moment ago, I heard amens, I heard hallelujahs, I heard hand claps, I saw hands raised. Those are all a fabric, a conglomeration of ways that we can make a joyful noise to the Lord. And then he says, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs. Again, songs is used there of praise. So what this psalmist is doing, men and women, this is what he's doing. He is calling you and I to do something. He's not calling you and I to just merely be a spectator in this thing called life. He's calling you and I to be a participant in something. Namely, he's calling you and I to be a participant in praise. He's calling us to use the very voices that God has given us to give glory back to God. In fact, this is what he's doing. The Hebrew word here for joyful noise, it means to make a shout of triumph. That's what it means. It doesn't mean to make a whisper of triumph. Hey, great job. No, it means to make a shout of triumph. And I'm not going to do it because some of you will be scared out of your seat, right? It means to make a shout of triumph. And I started to think on Wednesday, what does this actually mean? I mean, I know what it means to shout at my kids. <laughs> they cause, provoke me to do that all the time, right? I know what it means to shout in, the, in a season of emergency, when I need help, I know what that looks like. Maybe you know what that looks like too. But what does it look like to shout as means of triumph? And then on Wednesday night, bottom of the eight, Braves first Mets, Michael Harris Jr. puts one over the center field wall, right, to take the lead. It was five to five, now it's seven to five. The Braves are going to win the game. You think that stadium just sat there and was like, yes, great job. What did that stadium do? No, they, they did not do that. What did that stadium do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they got into it, didn't they? They gave a shout of triumph. And I was like, well, Lord, I don't want to use that illustration because, I mean, we're really good at doing that with sports. We're really good at doing that with baseball. But when it comes to things of God, you know, I don't really want to use that illustration. And then I watched the Braves again on Thursday night. <laughs> what happened on Thursday night? Ninth inning, Arcia gets up to the plate, and he hits a dinger, doesn't he? He puts one over the left field wall, what, no question about it. He ties it up 10 to 10. We go to extra innings, and if that wasn't enough, guess what happens in extra innings? Ozzy, he hits a three-run homer, right? And the Braves sweep their, their rivals, the Mets. What did that stadium do? 
they did not. <laughs> what did the stadium do? Yes, yes. They got into it, didn't they? They shouted with triumph. You know how I know that you shouted with triumph too? Because many of you put things on your Facebook wall like, you know, sweet-tastic. Some of you put that, done, son, with a broom beside it. And I know that you were celebrating and all of Georgia and the surrounding states were celebrating that we just swept the mess. But listen to me, church family. And I don't say this as a way of insult. I say this as a way of encouragement. You and I have more reason than anyone in the world to shout for triumph. And it's certainly, yes, and it's certainly not because Ozzie Albies hit a three-run homer to win the game. It's not. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the two-run homer in extra innings. When we needed it most, he did the work. He did it on the cross of Calvary. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. What does that mean? It means always dancing in rhythm with the work of God. That's what it means. That's what this summer's about, to get us back in rhythm with the Lord. Listen, no matter how difficult circumstances in your life become, church family, no matter how loud the noise of the world might be, we know that victory belongs to us in Christ Jesus, and we should, like the psalmist says, we can shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Because you know what I've learned in this world that I've lived in? I've, I've only been here for 42 years, guys. I don't have a whole lot to offer, but I have 42 years worth of offering this. Here's what I've learned. You can take away, you know, you know, my Nintendos because they do expire. You can take away my cars because they do deplete and get old and get rusty and quit working. You can take away all these different things, but there's one thing you cannot take away, and that is the rock of my salvation. My Jesus lives, and he resides in me and in you forever. So no matter what your circumstance may be, and no matter what loss you might have to endure, at the end of the day, there's one thing that remains steady and the same, and it's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and his name is Jesus. And we can shout for triumph because of him, can we not? We can, we can, we can. So the question on the table today is why? Why should we shout for triumph? Why should we as believers burst forth with songs of praise? What motivation do we have? to sing joyfully to the Lord. Well, the author gives us two motivations. The first one is this. It says, for he is a great God. You and I can shout joyfully because he is a great God. Look at verse three. It says, for the Lord is a great God. And if you didn't get it that time, he says he's a great king above all gods. It means he has no rivals. It says in verse four, in his hands are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. The greatness of God, what does that speak about? The greatness of God speaks about his absolute rule over all things. That there is nothing that happens, that happens unless he allows it to happen. Because he's a great God. And this is why the psalmist says he's a great king above all gods. Think about it. God is sitting in his rightful position on the throne. That's where he's at. He's king whether you and I acknowledge him as king or not. He's king. That's who he is. 
And he's surrounded today by creatures that live their lives to bring him glory. You remember the vision that Isaiah had in Isaiah chapter 6. Beautiful passage of scripture. Some of you are familiar with Isaiah chapter 6. I mean, listen to the words here. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. These are the created angels that he had. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said this. This is a proper view of God, by the way. It said this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. He's speaking of the greatness and the power and the magnitude of this great God. This is what they live to do. And if you think that some way, somehow that has dissipated, that that's a thing of the past, that's Old Testament, well, go over to Revelation chapter 4. Do you remember what it said in Revelation chapter 4 where John got a vision into the throne room of God? What does he say in Revelation chapter 4? He says, day and night, talking about the angels that are surrounding the throne of God, day and night, he says, without ceasing, all day long, all night long, what are they saying? Holy, holy Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holiness speaks of his absolute otherness. When we talk about God being holy, we're saying that he's in a class by himself. That he's everything that we are not. He's that holy. He's pure. He's undefiled. He's set apart. He's blameless. What is, what is Isaiah and what is John doing? They're saying that this is a great God. This is who he is. They're speaking about his character. He's a great God. But then when you say the Lord of hosts, or then when you say the Lord God Almighty, you know what that means? It means that he holds sway over all things. He holds sway over all things. He has total control and complete power over everything. Ma'am. Sir, young child, that includes you. That includes your situation. That includes your circumstance. That includes your wayward child. That includes you as a family and your dynamic as a family. That includes the person, the friend that has rebelled and betrayed everything that they have known growing up. That includes the father who can't lay off the bottle. That includes the the, the mother who can't quit using the card. It includes everybody. He's in control. He's got it all figured out. He's waiting for you and for me to hit our knees and to pray and to petition and to intercede on those people's behalf. Yes, but he hasn't lost control. He is still in control. He holds sway over all things. Here's what this means to us. When we stand before the majesty of God, and even when we stand before his creation, you're going to do that this summer. Here's what it means to us. This should inspire a sense of awe and reverence in our lives. Where we sit there and we look at the sunset or the sunrise or we listen to the birds tweet or we even think about the difficulty of the situations that you and I are walking through, we should sit in our seat full of awe and reverence because we can rest assured in one thing. Though everything in this world may change. It's rainy today, it might be sunny tomorrow, but at the end of the day, he does not he does not and he hasn't lost control so ma'am 
this summer as you watch the sunset at the lake or the beach, and sir, as you watch the sunset in the mountains or in your own backyard, remember what the psalmist said in Psalm chapter 8? Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. This summer, when you turn on your TV, or when you scroll through your social media accounts, or you even read the paper, for those of you who still do that, right? And you start to get frustrated at the current events around our world because they will frustrate you, okay? Remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 83, what he prayed, this is what he prayed, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Bring these people to a place of repentance. When you wake up to the calm of the earth, before anything starts to happen, any hustle, any bustle, will you offer praise like the psalmist did in Psalm 96? Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods for all the gods of the people are worthless idols but the Lord has made the heavens splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty, they are his sanctuary. This summer, when you're faced with, a, with chaos and confusion or, or you feel like your life is spiraling a little bit out of control like mine did last week because of our kids, Okay? All right, when that happens, Psalm 145, it says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name, not because things are good or things are bad, but I'll bless your name forever and ever, and every day I'll find reason to bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Listen to verse 3. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. The psalmist is making it abundantly clear, church family, that he is indeed a great God and he is greatly to be praised. It says his greatness is unsearchable. His greatness is unmatched. Now let me talk to you openly about the greatness of God. Don't ever give me a week off again, okay? About to bust out the seams here. Let me talk to you openly this morning. For some of us, we're sitting in this room today like I was this past week. And I started to think, man, is the greatness of God still relevant to me today? Man, in full transparency, there are some things that happen in life where you just wonder, is God really as great as he used to be? I mean, I read these things in scripture. And I start to notice a little bit of doubt starts to creep in. Maybe you have experienced something like that as well. I talked about the Braves a moment ago. Many of you also know that there was another championship won this week, and that was by the Oklahoma University softball team. They went and won the College World Series in softball, but before they ever played a game, you saw a video that went viral, a video of a slogan that they've used all year long called Eyes Up. And essentially, the question that the journalists asked the Oklahoma University softball team before they ever stepped foot on the field is about their joy and where it came from. And if they lost this, because they were the defending champions, if they lost this, would, would they lose their joy too? And the girls did a remarkable job at answering that question. They said, absolutely not. Like, the, the, the thing you need to know about us is our joy doesn't come from the game. It's a game. 
and we're going to give everything that we've got, and we're going to play to the best of our ability, and we're going to leave it all on the field. But at the end of the day, if we don't walk home with a trophy, we're not going to lose joy because our joy doesn't come from the trophy. Our joy comes from Jesus. And, and there's one thing that you can't take, and that's Jesus. And I thought, man, man how remarkable. I kind of wanted them to lose just because I wanted them to see, you know, the world to see that that wasn't just like fictitious, that really their joy does come from Christ. Uh, but then I started to think about it. The most annoying thing in the world to me was volleyball because these girls would get beat and they'd walk off the court like, next time, girls. And I'm like, no, man, I'll be kicking something, throwing something. You know. but, but anyway, they didn't. They won, and they won with class, and it was a remarkable story. But they had this slogan called Eyes Up. And I started to think about that. What does that actually mean? It means as long as you keep your eyes up to the greatness of God, the things of this world grow strangely dim. They grow strangely dim. I mean, think about how this really is relevant. When we have eyes that are up to the greatness of God, we would steer clear of greed. We'd be the most generous people on all the planet. When our eyes are up to the greatness of God, we wouldn't stray after lustful desires because we would know that anything that this world offers can't truly satisfy. Only he can. When our eyes are up to the greatness of God, we wouldn't get frustrated so easily at our spouse and children. That's not convicting. When our eyes are up to the greatness of God, we wouldn't pout when things don't go our way and we wouldn't be obsessed with our looks or worry about our image. When our eyes are up to the greatness of God, we wouldn't waste away so much time mindlessly scrolling through social media or getting so easily discouraged by the godlessness of this culture. We would get burdened and we would pray, but our eyes would remain up. See, the greatness of God must stay at the front, the forefront of our minds. And we must become so overwhelmed with his greatness that, like I said, everything in this world starts to grow strangely, strangely dim. Paul says, when this happens in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, you and I will be transformed from one degree of glory to another. How do we do that? We just keep our eyes up. So the motivation for our joy and the songs we sing for joy, first, ought to be because we have a great God. But there's a second and a final motivation. Not only do you and I have reason to sing because he is a great God, but we also have reason to sing because he is our God. Oh, he's great, but he's also ours. Look at verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship him, bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. Underline that, highlight that if you're one who writes in your Bible. I mean, say that to yourself over and over and over and over again this week. He is our God, and we are the people of his pasture in the sheep of his hand you've got to cross the bridge this morning okay church we got to cross this bridge is he great absolutely but he's our god it's personal but yeah he's good and yeah he's great and that could be generally speaking but he's also ours we are the people of his pasture the sheep of his hand what does this mean he is great but that doesn't mean he's distant no he's actually near He's great, and he's near. And because he's near, he is great. Because he's great, he is near. He's also holy. But because he's holy, he's also relatable. What do you mean? Like, he's completely other, but he still invites us into his otherness. <laughs> that should blow your mind. He's completely righteous. And he says to you, through Christ, you can become like me, completely righteous. 
Not because of anything that you've done, but because of what Jesus has already done for you. See, when Jesus went to the cross, he took your sin and my sin on himself at the cross, and we place our faith and our trust in the finished work of Jesus. We who were unrighteous, the Bible says there was a great exchange that took place. He took his righteousness, or he took our sin, and he exchanged it for his righteousness. Beautiful. So he's other, but he invites us in. He's almighty. But listen, he's still relational. He still desires intimacy and relationship with me and with you. And that should overwhelm our hearts this morning. We praise him because he's great. Yes, we do. But we also praise him because he is ours and we are his. And because he's ours and because we are his, guess what? He cares immensely about me and about you. He knows you, church family, by name. He knows every freckle on your face. He knows every strand of hair, no insult to you bald guys, on your head. He knows every detail about your life, and it doesn't bore him to tears. No, he's actively engaged in it because he loves you. That is the beauty of this great God. And it goes further to say he even shepherds your heart. If there's anybody in the world that I want to shepherd my heart, it has to be the one who's perfect. It has to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You know why? Because if you shepherd me, you might mislead me because I know some of you. But if he shepherds me, he will never mislead me. I will feel misled at times, but I can always trust that everywhere he leads me, he does it for my joy and for his glory. And I can bank on that reality. We praise him because he's great, but we praise him because he's our great God. But like I told you at the beginning, this psalm, this great psalm, yes, it leads us to worship, but there's also a very strong warning. Look at it. The psalmist says today, if you hear his voice, Francis Schaeffer would say he is always present and he is never silent. So today, if you hear his voice and he is speaking, you must listen do not harden your hearts. He's not talking to your spouse. He's talking to you. He's not talking to your friend or that person that you know that's just walking in rebellion. He's talking to you. He says, do not harden your hearts. The reference here that he gives to Mariba takes place in Exodus chapter 17. You know what happened? In Exodus chapter 17, God had just rescued his people from Egyptian slavery. And they crossed the Red Sea. Many of you know that, that they crossed the Red Sea in dramatic fashion. And they get across the Red Sea and they're walking through the desert. And what do the people of God start to do? They start to doubt him. Did we make the wrong decision? Are we following the wrong leader? I mean, who brought us to the desert? It's hot in the desert. We're growing weary in the desert. The desert out here is exhausting. We need some water. We need something to quench our thirst. We're going to die out here in the desert. Who brought us out here? They start to doubt the very one who just rescued them in dramatic fashion. He leads them into the desert, the wilderness. They begin to complain. They don't have no water. They even question if God was with them or not even, anymore. And this cycle that they started has continued over and over and over and over again. The cycle of God delivers, 
man doubts. God delivers, man doubts. It goes through the Old Testament, God delivers, man doubts, into the New Testament. God delivers, man doubts, and it even enters the hearts of every soul that is sitting in this auditorium today. God delivers, we doubt. I want to encourage you something this morning. Whatever you do, trust this. The same God who rescued you through Jesus will continue to provide for you and care for you and lead you. The Bible is abundantly clear. He will never leave you nor forsake you. You might feel left and you might feel forsaken, but you can trust that your emotions and your feelings are not always accurate. He will not leave you and he will not forsake you. Why? Because he is our God. We are the sheep of his hands. He is guiding and he is leading every step of the way. Now let's end here. Verse 7 at the end it says, Today, if you hear his voice. You know what that word today is? That word today is a word that conveys a sense of urgency. Not tomorrow, today. Right now. This second. Men, women, boys, girls, today, right now, if you hear his voice. And he's always talking. And he's doing it today through his word. We must listen. You must listen. I must listen. Today, sense of urgency. When he talks, and he's talking today, we must listen. This is what he says. Do not harden your hearts. Listen to me, church family. The problem with hearing from God has nothing to do with our ears. It has everything to do with our hearts. You and I don't hear from God because our hearts have become hardened. They have become so full of doubt that we don't believe that he who delivers will deliver again. And I'm going to be the first one to step out on the platform and say, this happens to me every day. As your pastor, there are days where I wonder, God, are you going to show up? God, are you sleeping? God, why are you silent? God, do you even hear my prayers? God, why are our finances not headed in the direction I want them to go? Why is that man or that woman not getting it? There are days where I literally wonder that. And God has used the prep of this sermon to remind me that, Trey, even in your doubting, you're starting to harden your hearts. And you're not created to doubt. You're created to worship and worship me. And when you worship me, you will rest assured that he who delivered before will deliver it again. Will he, Louisa? Will he deliver? How do you know? You've seen it. You saw it in the Old Testament. You saw it in the New Testament. You saw it in your own husband. We saw it, church family. And some of you, you've seen how God has delivered in your individual lives too. Don't dismiss that. Keep record of that. Why? Because he who was faithful then is he who is faithful now. What do we need to do? Don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Believe, trust, obey. And the more that you trust and the more that you obey, the more that God receives that as worship and then he starts moving and shaking in our midst. And church family, that's what I want to be a part of. I want to be a part of a church that's going to make an impact not only here, part of a church that's making an impact across the pond. The whole world experiences the reverberation of what started right here because we have men and women 
who insist our hearts will not become hardened. We will not doubt. We will trust and we will obey and we'll follow our shepherd every step of the way. 